continue a message series that uh, we started a few weeks ago called uh, Weakness in Strength, Weakness in Strength. And the idea here is that when we read the Bible, a lot of times what we do is we distance ourselves from the people in the pages of the Bible. So we say, well, that's them, but I can't relate to them. I mean, they're spiritual giants, and they're so close to God, and, you know, they're, they're almost like mythological characters to us, and we feel, we feel like we can't relate to them. Um, I, would, I would challenge that. I think when you read through the, the Scripture carefully, and you read it with some, with some detail, and you try and look between the lines a little bit, you will see that some of the most significant people in the Bible have their weaknesses, have their frailties, have their failures, have even their sins, and yet God still uses those people. And so I thought it would be really good to look at some of those people and see what we could learn from them. We looked at the life of John the Baptist first and the doubt of John the Baptist, if you remember, and uh, we started a series uh, or a, a part two on uh, Elijah the Old Testament prophet. Were you here for that? Any of you, raise your hands if you remember any of that message. All right, I will quiz you a little bit, okay? So weakness and strength, a look at the frailties and the failures of some of the most known people in Scripture. And we're going to talk about the depression of Elijah, the depression of Elijah. You say, what? Elijah was depressed? Well, yes, I think that he was. So James chapter 5, uh, verses 17 to 18, this is the famous uh, New Testament passage about Elijah, and it's talking about his prayer life, and it's so encouraging. You know, Elijah was a man just like us, right? We say, okay, he, if he could pray the way that Elijah prayed in the Old Testament, then maybe I can pray the same way. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it would not rain. And we looked at that story a couple of weeks ago, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. We say, yes, Elijah, I would love to pray like that. And then when we go back and we look at the story, we see in the midst of the story, toward the end of the story, this rather striking part where after this great confrontation between Elijah and these 850 prophets of Baal and Asherah, this kind of showdown, which God is the true God, do you remember? And, and Elijah says, well, you set up your sacrifice and I'll set up my sacrifice. You remember the story? And Elijah lays the terms down and he says, the God who answers by fire He's the true God. You know, it's a showdown at the OK Corral. And you see that, that Elijah effectively wins that showdown. And it's, it's an incredibly dramatic moment in the Bible. And then he, then he brings rain on the land. You remember, he goes to Ahab, the evil king, and he says, there's going to be rain. And then Elijah prays, and he prays, and he prays, and then the rain comes. And, and then we pick up the story here in 1 Kings chapter 19. Now, Ahab told Jezebel, that's his wife, everything Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with a sword. This is the false prophets of Asherah and Baal. 
So Jezebel sent a message to Elijah to say, may the gods deal with me, be it ever so severely, if by this time tomorrow I do not make your life like one of them. So she threatens this prophet Elijah's life. And his reaction is really bizarre. Elijah was afraid and ran for his life. And when he came to Beersheba in Judah, we'll take a look at this in a moment. Uh, he came there, he left his servant there, and he himself went another day's journey into the desert. And he comes to a broom tree, sits down under it, and prays that he might die. I have had enough, Lord, he says. Take my life. I am no better than my ancestors. And then he lay down under the tree and fell asleep. The depression of uh, Elijah. Before we go any further and before I forget, I just wanted to say thank you to a few volunteers who are in this room. Eneda and Diana, where are you? Diana and uh, Estella. Can you raise your hands, please, please? I don't mean to put you on the spot, but these three ladies helped out on uh, Friday. Did you come on Saturday as well? Okay, on Friday over at Mission Nouvelle Génération. And we happen to have the general director and his wife here, Stéphane Plante, and his wife. Can you just say hi? You didn't think I would let you be here without you. <laughs> so they're visiting with us today. And what an incredible event that, that some of our volunteers uh, and Oasis Church, which meets, uh, it's a portable church that meets meets in Heritage High School, a French church, and Mission Nouvelle Génération, probably 75, 100 volunteers uh, who, who uh, um, gave school bags to some 600 children, and they had to fill these bags with school supplies one by one, following the school lists one by one. What an incredible operation. I mean, there were so many people there, hundreds and hundreds of people who passed through there. We had hot dogs outside and all this stuff. So what an incredible event. Thank you for serving, those of you who did with me. And uh, it's, it's great to partner with other organizations and do something for the community. Amen? Okay, good. So just wanted to mention that. So the, the depression of Elijah. So uh, just, just by way of review, because some of you weren't here, Elijah walks into a really, really bad situation, right? He walks into a land. He's ministering in the land mid-9th century BC. You've got the, the gods of Ashtoreth there. You've got the gods of Moloch and Chemosh there. Uh, you have a nation that's divided because of Solomon and his bad choices, and he brings in all of this, all this different religion and all of these different religious views and all of these different gods. And as a result, the nation is split and there's a civil war. And uh, you see the, the, the first king who takes over in the south there uh, is, um, I'm sorry, in the north there is Jeroboam. So up in Israel, you have 10 tribes. Down in south, you, in Judah, you have two tribes. And up in the north there, you have Jeroboam and Jeroboam sets up the gold and calves, if you remember. So he brings in this whole different religious system, and it doesn't get any better. You have all this litany of kings, all these kings of, of Israel from Jeroboam all the way down to King Ahab. And Ahab is the worst of the lot. And this is the king that Elijah is ministering to and ministering under in the nation of Israel, which is in a time of civil war. 
It's a terribly dark time. It's a very violent time. It's a takeover or you will be taken out time. This is a totally different culture. This is a totally, this is not 21st century North America, okay? This is the Middle East in the 9th century BC. There is no separation between church and state. Everything is religious. Everything is political. Everything is violent. So it is a very, very difficult time in Israel's history. And Ahab has a wild wife by the name of Jezebel. And Jezebel brings in even more of these gods. She is from Phoenicia and she brings in uh, uh, Baal and Asherah. You can see the little statues there. Baal was a storm god. You see his, his right arm raised there. And she brings in even more of this stuff. And Jezebel has a fondness, a delight for killing Israel's prophets. So the prophets who truly believe in Yahweh, in Jehovah, she has a delight, it seems, in seeing them executed. It's a very, very difficult time. And this is the time that Elijah is ministering in, if you remember. And we see his life leading up to this moment of depression, right? We see that he's a guy who's confronting all the time. He confronts King Ahab. He, he does it again when he brings the rain on the land and he's confrontational. His wiring is that way. He goes and he runs and hides after he initially confronts Ahab and says there's going to be no rain. You know, you believe in Baal, the storm god. Well, I'll tell you who the true god is. There's going to be no rain in the land. And so this is a confrontation. He has to run for his life. You remember, he runs into uh, to a woman at Zarephath who she She's a widow. She has nothing left in her home. She's about to die. And Elijah performs this miracle of multiplication. Do you remember where the oil and the, and the flour keeps on coming in her house and she lives on and on and her son lives on and on. But then her son passes away and Elijah has to pray and bring her son back from the dead. Do you remember the story? Well, go back a couple of weeks, watch it on Facebook, and you'll see it's just all by review, okay? But just so you know where you are. And then he goes back to Ahab, and he confronts Ahab with this whole thing of this, this confrontation between the false gods and the one true God. So his life is just confrontation, perseverance, persecution, confrontation, over and over and over again. And he wins this, this crazy showdown. You know, he puts his sacrifice there and he throws water on it and he builds a trench so that there's just water all over it. Then he prays this really simple prayer and the fire comes down out of the sky and it consumes the sacrifice and it burns up the water. And so everyone says, Elijah's God is the true God. And all these false prophets who, who again, it's a very violent time, very violent culture, they, they're all executed there in the Kishon Valley. Now, just, just pause for you because it's a big objection today when people look at these stories in the Old Testament and say, it's so violent. Why does God seem to condone all of this violence and the slaughter of seemingly innocent people? Be careful with that kind of criticism. You need to respect and appreciate the culture and the time and the context that you're dealing with there. It's not 21st century Western world. 
This is 9th century BC. It's completely different. People are settling. People are taking over. It's you take them out or they will take you out. That's the way that it was. You don't necessarily have statements from God that says that this is a good thing, but it was the thing. That is what happened back then. And here you have an example of that. So all of these false prophets, they're taken out. And then Elijah runs for his life because of this threat from one woman. And he runs, and he runs hard, because after the, the, he announces that the rain will come uh, at the end of, uh, of 1 Kings chapter 18, the sky grows black, do you remember? And, and he tells Ahab, you better head down to Jezreel, because the rain's coming. And the Bible says the Spirit of God came upon Elijah, and he tucks his, his, um, his cloak into his belt and he runs and he beats Ahab, who's on a chariot. He beats him on foot down to Jezreel. It's about 17 miles. So he runs a marathon effectively and he gets down to, to Jezreel and that's where uh, he hears of this threat on his life. And so he's afraid and he runs and runs and runs. And that's where we'll, uh, we'll pick up the story. If you remember lesson number one from a couple of weeks ago, really simple after all of that context that we learn about Elijah, even the most godly people, even people of the strongest faith can suffer through sometimes even severe moments of depression. We do not talk about this enough in the church, and there are people in church circles and people of faith and people who love the Lord, and yet they struggle, and they struggle silently because we tend to be very negative and very, well, you know, you shouldn't, you should never be depressed if you're a Christian. I mean, you should be praise the Lord happy all the time. What's wrong with you? You're, you're sad, well, pull yourself up, you know? Don't you know who you are in Christ? And don't you know all the things that God has done for you? Why are you sad? Why are you depressed? Why are you down? Why are you all these things? There's something wrong with you. And this is what we often say. Hmm, I wonder what we would have said to Elijah. Uh, because in Elijah's case, when you look at what he is saying, he has an irrational fear. I mean, this is a man who confronted Ahab twice, a man who, uh, you know, he just, he just called down fire from heaven and it burned up water. And yet this one woman has him running for his life. It's, it's irrational. It makes no sense. I mean, he could have just as easily said, look, I'll go and confront Jezebel and I'll call down fire again and that'll be the end of Jezebel. But no, he is, he is afraid of her and it's not a rational fear if you look at the context of the story. Not only that, he wants to die. I mean, this is a man who God tends to answer his prayers with yes, and he prays that God would take his life. He wants, he wants his life to end. He has a sense of failure in his own call 
and his own vocation, right? He says uh, in his kind of lament to God, he says, I'm no better than my ancestors. Just take my life. I'm no better than them, i.e., I have not succeeded in the call that you have placed on my life. And not only that, but he is physically exhausted because he runs from Jezreel down to Beersheba. We don't know if he runs, but he takes a long journey. I'll show you how long that is in a moment. So the case can be made that this man is in a bout of depression. I know that makes some Christians feel uncomfortable, but there are, there are psychologists, Christian and non-Christian, who have looked at this story and said, well, if this is a real story or a somewhat real story, the conditions are ripe for this man to be in a depression, and it looks suspiciously like he is. So even people who are not even Christians sometimes say that about this, this account. Now, while we're on the subject, seeing as Elijah is a man, I want to give all the men in the room a little a little tip okay this book if you if you are interested in this subject or you are battling this subject this book is one of the best books out there uh, coming from a Christian perspective on the subject of male depression Male depression is a little different than female depression. The way that, that men act when they're depressed is quite different than the way that women act when they are depressed. This book, Unmasking Male Depression by Archibald Hart, okay? If you want to take a picture of it on the screen, fantastic book. You, you will not be able to put it down, even if you have friends who deal with depression. This book will help them very, very much. That's the Christian way of, of saying I know you're depressed. Just take a picture for your friend, okay? I told you Christians could be funny. You didn't get the joke. Okay, I'll move on. I'll move on. So, so the, the, the world of the Old Testament, because I want to show you some things here in terms of what, what's going through Elijah's head when he's, when he's going through this moment, all right? Um, on the screen, on the, on the left-hand side, you have, a, you have a shot of the broader Middle East there, okay? And uh, what, I, what I found there, that was, that's the red outline. That's the state of Texas in the United States. The, the world of the Bible in many ways is very small and in many ways is also very big. But you could take the state of Texas and plop it on to much of, of, the, of the geographical context of the Bible. That's how small it is in some ways, all right? So you see Israel on the left there. Well, what I've done is I've zoomed into Israel on the right there and the, the sort of um, purple portion there, that's Israel in the Old Testament. Um, and you see some of the cities there, Capernaum and Nazareth and Jerusalem and Bethlehem. And the green outline that you see, that's the state of New Jersey. That's plopped onto Bible Israel. All right. That's how small Israel is. It's like the state of New Jersey. Any of you ever driven through New Jersey before? It's like 200 miles long. I mean, it's not that big of a state. So in many ways, it's small, but in other ways, it's big. Because in the Bible, we see these people have an awareness of a much broader context, you know, going into, into Assyria and Egypt and uh, Babylon and all these places. So it's small and it's big at the same time. So when we look at Elijah and what he went through, Another map there. I hope you're not too bored by it. But the thing is pointing to Mount Carmel. 
That is where he had the showdown with the prophets of Baal and, and Asherah. Okay, so Elijah tells, uh, tells Ahab, bring them all here for the big, big showdown. Let's get it on. Let's see whose God is the real God. And then he runs to Jezreel. That's that 17-mile marathon where he manages to beat somebody on a chariot, and he gets down there to Jezreel, and that's where his life is threatened by Jezebel. And then he takes off, and he heads down to Beersheba, which is some 100-plus miles from uh, Jezreel. Any of you ever been to the Holy Land before? Ever taken a trip there? Raise your hand, raise your hand. Okay, so you know that it's small and big at the same time, okay? And so uh, this is where he is uh, 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 in Beersheba where he, where he laments for the first time. And he says, I have had enough, Lord, take my life. I'm no better than my ancestors. And then he lays down, we're told, under the tree and he falls asleep, exhausted. And all at once, an angel touched him and said, get up and eat. And he looked around, and there by his head was a cake of bread baked over hot coals and a jar of water. And he ate, and he drank, and he lay down, and he slept again. And then the angel of the Lord came back a second time and touched him and said, get up and eat, for the journey is too much for you. We're not told why he's going where he's going, but he's certainly on a long journey. So he gets up and he eats and he drinks. Strengthened by that food, he traveled 40 days and 40 nights until he reached Mount Horeb, uh, the mountain of God. That's where Moses got the Ten Commandments, all right? And then he goes and he finds a cave and he spends uh, the night there. Now, that is a long, long way away. I have to show you another map and zoom out there. So the little green patch is where he is in Beersheba. And he goes 40 days, 40 nights, about 260 miles uh, there's debate as to why it took him so long to get there. Uh, some say it's because the terrain was very difficult to cross. Some say other things, but he goes for like a month and a half and he makes it to the place where God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, Mount Horeb, also called Mount Sinai. And here is where we learn how he deals with this moment in his life and how God shows him what to do. So he ends up in Horeb, and there he went into a cave and spent the night. Uh, and then the word of the Lord came to Elijah, 2 Kings 19 and verse 9. God asks him a question. What are you doing here, Elijah? I mean, Elijah, it's a long way from home. What are you doing here? And he says, well, I have been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. Uh, the Israelites have rejected your covenant. They have broken your altars. They have put your prophets to death with the sword. And I am the only one left. And now they are trying to kill me too. And so the Lord says to him, 
Go out and stand on the mountain, the very mountain that Moses stood on to get the Ten Commandments after the children of Israel had had left Egypt. Go and stand on the mountain in the presence of the Lord, for the Lord is about to pass by. And then if you know the story, I call it the earth, wind, and fire story after the old band, right? So there's a great and powerful wind, and it tears the mountains apart, and it shatters the rocks, and, but the Lord was not in the wind. So Elijah, he's a guy who expects God to move in very dramatic ways. I mean, he saw fire come down out of the sky and lick up water, you know, and there's this great wind, and, but the Lord, he's not in the wind. And after the wind, there was an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake, and after the earthquake came a fire. So earth, wind, and fire. And the Lord was not in the fire. I mean, he was in the fire on Mount Carmel, but he's not in the fire now. And after the fire came a gentle whisper. And when Elijah heard it, he pulled his cloak over his face, and he went out and he stood at the mouth of the cave. And then a voice said to him the exact same question. What are you doing here, Elijah? What are you doing here? I mean, presumably God would know what he's doing there, but he asks him this question, and he says the same thing. I've been very zealous for the Lord God Almighty. The Israelites rejected your covenant, and they broke your altars, and they put your prophets to death, and I'm the only one left. And they're trying to kill me too. The exact same answer. And this is what God tells him to do. He says, go back the way you came. Go back the way you came. That's a long, long way. He says, go back the way you came. Go And also go to the desert of Damascus. I'll show you that in a minute. And when you get there, you're to anoint Hazael, the king over Aram. You're to anoint Jehu, the king over, uh, uh, over Israel. And you're to anoint Elisha to succeed you as a prophet. And this is where the story kind of ends. So he tells him, you need to go all the way back the way you came, and ultimately you need to anoint Elisha to take your place. You say, what does all this have to do with depression? What do we have to learn from all of this stuff? Well, slow it down and take a look at it, and I'll give you some real, real practical stuff as we, as we close, and we'll move into, uh, into communion at the end of the service, all right? So lesson number one from two weeks ago, even the most godly people Even people of great, great faith, you know, some of the great preachers of the 19th, 18th century battled and battled and battled with bouts of depression. Even, even, that can even happen to the most godly of people. Don't lie to yourself, don't kid yourself. But lesson number two, and we learn this very practically from the text. First thing, create what what I'll call winning conditions physically. All right? I had a psychologist who told me this one time. He said, you need to have winning conditions in your body if you're going to have winning conditions in your mind. So your recipe for mental health is physical health. What do you see? You see that Elijah falls asleep, exhausted when he reaches Beersheba. He runs the 17-mile marathon, then he goes another 100 miles to Beersheba. He's absolutely 
exhausted and he sleeps and he sleeps and he sleeps and he sleeps and he lays down again and he gets up and he eats. I mean, and God actually provides a meal for him. I love this part because God does not condemn him. God actually provides for him. And he says, get up and eat, get up and eat. The journey is too long for you. You've got to have some physical winning conditions if you're going to have mental stability, if you're dealing with depression, okay? Um, uh, my family and I, we, we just got back from the United States. We spent a week in, in the U.S. Uh, in the state of Florida. Can I just tell you, I, I don't think I would want to live in the United States uh, unless God called me to, to be there. It's not because of the current political situation, okay? It's not because of the, of the firearm situation, all right? I'll tell you why I wouldn't want to live there. It's because of the food situation. Have you ever been to the U.S.? You know how much junk food there is there? Like there's junk food that it, they don't sell it here in Canada, have you noticed? So whenever we go to the U.S., I will, I, I, my family knows I always buy this one box of something that you can't get in Canada. I just buy one box because you can't even buy it in this whole nation, you know? I mean, they have so much junk food there. If I lived there, I'd probably weigh 300 pounds. I mean, it's no wonder there's so many problems there I think half the people are depressed because they eat so much junk food. I mean, it's incredible, you know, and you got diabetes and all these kinds of problems in the U.S., a lot, a lot, a lot of junk food there, and 10 times as many people, 300 million people in the U.S. compared to 30 million in Canada. I prefer Canada, and you know what? I even prefer Quebec, la belle province. Yes, sir. And you should say you should say you do too. After all, you live here. So you gotta have physical winning conditions. Okay. If you don't sleep at night and you eat garbage all the time and you find that you're depressed half the time, uh, do the math on that. All right. Learn learn to have proper sleep habits. Learn to eat somewhat better, and you you may be a little less depressed. Lesson number three. Look at the question that God asks Elijah. What are you doing here, Elijah? I mean, what if God asked you that question? What are you doing here? And he called you by name. You would probably think about that question for days and days on end. What does he mean by that? What am I doing here? Doesn't he know what I'm doing here? I mean, I'm, I'm mad, I'm upset, I'm depressed. I'm, what, why is he asking me what am I doing here? Do you know what it does? It causes Elijah to be self-aware. It causes him to wonder why is God asking? And he doesn't, he doesn't really know why, and he just gives God the same answer over and over and over again. You've got to be self-aware when you're dealing with this kind of thing. You've got to realize, okay, I, 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 need, to, I need to own it. I need to say what it is. I need to be aware of it in a healthy way. Sometimes people who are depressed are incredibly self-centered. They think that everything, we think that everything is about us all the time. I'm not talking about that type of self-awareness. I'm talking about, okay, be aware you have this particular tendency to get depressed in this particular situation and be honest and be aware of it because it's 
true. And if you can't do that in a healthy fashion, find somebody who can, who can spot it for you. Maybe you need to talk to your pastor, okay? I'm not a trained professional in the area, but I've got a lot of experience with it myself and a lot of experience dealing with people who struggle with it. You've got to be self-aware. Maybe you need a counselor. Maybe you need someone who can help you see this thing from the outside. What are you doing here, Elijah? Number four, God still speaks to you even if you're in this kind of situation. He didn't speak to Elijah the way Elijah thought he would. He speaks in a still, small voice. And oftentimes, depressed or not, God speaks that way. So often we want to see a hand on the wall and we want to see a lightning bolt come from the sky. We want to see the, you know, the fire come down from heaven. And yet God is saying, hello, can you hear me? I'm talking to you, but you're too busy looking for the earth and the wind and the fire. So God still speaks to people even when people are in moments of mental duress and depression and darkness, he still speaks. Lesson number five, do your job. It's not all about you. So God says to Elijah, Elijah, go back the way you came and do your job. You've got three people who you need to anoint and there's reasons for each person. And this is his job. That's what prophets did back in that day. They would go up to this person, this king or this leader, and they would pour this oil on them, and they would have kind of a ceremonial thing, and they would declare this person the king of Israel, etc. And so he's got to anoint three people. In the end, he only does one of them, and his successor, Elisha, does the other two. But uh, it's Hazael, the king over Aram, and Jehu, the king over Israel, and Jehu would actually be an evil king, and then Elisha to be your successor. And he tells him why. And he says, these three people will be my agents of wrath. So whoever escapes the one will run into the other, and whoever escapes the other will run into the third person. But you, Elijah, you need to do your job. And it's not all about you. I've got a successor who's coming behind you. I've got the whole thing worked out. I've got the whole thing planned out. And so it really isn't all about you. He gives him a dose of reality. Because sometimes when people are in these moments of depression, they, they don't see clearly. They need a little bit of a sobriety check, which brings us to the last lesson. Do not... Uh, overestimate the circumstance that you're in. We tend to do that when we're depressed. It always seems worse than it actually is. Don't overestimate the circumstance and don't underestimate God. We do this too. God is always on the case. We often do not acknowledge it. We often claim not to see it. But God is always, always moving and he is always on the job and he is always on the case. And he reminds Elijah, Elijah, I reserve 7,000 in Israel. 
It's not just you, Elijah. I'm the only one left and they're trying to take my life. No, 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 Elijah, your, your, your perspective is all wrong. I'm on the case. You've overestimated the circumstances and you've underestimated me. I have 7,000 in Israel, all whose knees have not bowed to Baal and whose mouths have not kissed him. I have a remnant in Israel that I have raised up. Do your job. Go back the way that you came. It's not all about you. And some of those things, even though they're 2,900 years old and they're from a story from way, way long ago, they can help us even today in the 21st century. A 